Greetings, good listeners. I am so pleased to have Katie Cross on the show today to discuss Pledge Ball. Those who know me and this podcast will not be in the least bit surprised as to why I'm so excited for this conversation when they hear what Pledge Ball is. Pledge Ball is a research-proven initiative that enables football fans from grassroots to professional to make sustainable lifestyle choices in support of their team. I mean, yes, please. Today, we get into changing mindsets, community engagement, trying not to be overwhelmed by the challenges ahead, making sustainability fun, and of course, the role that football can play in all of this. Here is our conversation. Good afternoon, Katie. How are you doing today? I am good, thanks. Yeah, really happy to be here as well. Great. Thanks so much for coming on the show. So I will start at the beginning. Where did your relationship with sport begin? I mean, I've always enjoyed sport uh, right from being a kid, but the, my relationship with football started in my late 20s when I just wanted a, a team sport and started playing with my partner and his mates. Um, which was quite an introduction to football, you know, ends up in quite a severely broken arm. Oh. <laughs> but from there, I just, I mean, it's its the thing I really wish I'd done as a kid and I can't get enough of football now. That is quite late to start a, a new sport, but that's cool. Um, were you, did you have any reservations about picking up something new at that age? Um, I had reservations about, jo- when I then subsequently joined a women's squad um, that's, you know, competes in a casual league as well. I had reservations then because I was like, they would have, you know, they've all played since school. I'm much older. Um, but actually, it's been absolutely amazing. <laughs> yes, yes. And I found actually um, a couple of uh, women I know in recent years, I think as the sort of gender stereotype barrier around football starts breaking down, a lot more women are taking up football, as you say, late 20s, early 30s, and finding that same enjoyment of casual, not super high intensity, but um uh, you know, team spirited. Not super high intensity. I mean, <laughs> that's- okay. I should rephrase. Not super high risk, as opposed to like going to become like a, a downhill skier or something like that. It's 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 something you slightly just easier to get into. Yeah, I'll give you that. Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's not only obviously the sport and the fact that you know you don't work out in the same way that you do on a football pitch. You forget how much it hurts on a football pitch. Mm. Also, the the incredible community that you get with joining that team that squad yes um you know it genuinely colors everything else that you do belonging to that team yes yes and i find it because i'm still quite like i go to um i go to a gym and I, i have a nice community there i still find with something like football where you're achieving a team goal as opposed to a collective set of individual goals those those bonds of community are formed a bit faster than otherwise would be in the gym so oh definitely i mean where else do you go and experience those kind of highs and lows Yes. Nowhere else do you experience something that makes you, you know, dance like an idiot because you've because you scored a goal. Yes. You don't see that anywhere else, particularly on such a regular basis. Yes, and I I find it funny when you you know you see a friend who maybe six months ago said, "Well, I'm not sure about joining this team," and you ask them, "How's their How's their day?" They're like, "Oh, works rubbish, but I scored a goal last night." Exactly. I know. I I was um I was I was being followed by a couple of kids when I was walking along the street uh, recently and. They, oh no, I say kids. <laughs> they must have been, I don't know, students, early 20s, I reckon. But the guy was relaying this exact 
uh, goal that he'd scored when he was at primary school <laughs> to the woman and explained, you know, in minute detail about everything that happened and how he felt around it. And he still remembered that. And I just, yes. it just has that, that kind of impact, doesn't it? You don't forget. Yes. Although I have a story, which I will now relay to my listeners, uh, which of the, of a similar sense, but not maybe with the positive outcome where I remember under 16 C team. So this is now, <laughs> you know, 12, 13, 14 years ago, uh, at my school, we had like two injuries, including the goalkeeper. So someone needed to, someone needed to go and goal. I'm like, all right, volunteer first 30 seconds in goal, have to defend a corner ball comes in. I thought, oh, I'll just tap it over my own tap it over, send it out for another corner. Nope, tapped it into my net. <laughs> Undisputed own goal off the goalkeeper's hand. Oh, that has been outdone recently, hasn't it? Did you see the uh, perfect hat trick, own goal hat trick? Yes, yes, <laughs> I did see that in the, in the um, for the New Zealand team, yeah. I believe it was, the women's. Yes. And Absolutely crushing. <laughs> yeah, it is crushing. What is annoying to me though, I, I feel bad for her because that means a lot of people will only remember her for that. I know. I, I knew her otherwise because she played for the Liverpool women's team, which is the team I support. Nice. Um, so yeah, that was good. And I know she's a good player. So I, when I saw that, I was just like, that is just terrible luck. It, that is, is, yeah. it was such terrible luck, especially because they really were, I mean, beautiful goals. <laughs> no, exactly. Right. Exactly. I'd say one of them, she probably needs to do a bit better. The other two were just like, yeah. you know, the universe is, is yeah. aligned against you. Um, but now talking of pledge ball, let's dive into that. Why did you start pledge ball? So pledge ball began for a couple of reasons, partly because of the kind of utter despair that my nearest and dearest felt in the face of climate change. You know, this real kind of sense of paralysis and just being completely overwhelmed in the face of something over which they felt they had no control. Um, that was part of it. And then secondarily to that, also, I, you know, witnessing the kind of responses that, for example, Extinction Rebellion get by people. Um, that, that was really where it started, because to me, it made me think that actually, when you boil down the questions of climate change to something, you know, to what it means, you know, do you want to preserve the area in which we live do you want to maintain life as close to what it is now would you like to breathe clean air make it as local as possible the answers are obviously yes but there's such a stigma and association attached to environmentalists that you know the marketing around climate change has not engaged the vast majority of people yeah so either they're completely alienated by it or they just have this complete paralysis in the face of such a seemingly overwhelmingly huge problem. Yep. I mean, I say seemingly overwhelming is a huge problem, but over which they seemingly have no control. And I'd say I, I can relate to that so um, deeply because I had something similar, probably going into, um, particularly going into the COVID pandemic, you know, when you were spending a lot of time um, at home, you know, not socializing as much, kind of reading sad stories on The Guardian about the state of the world. It can get very overwhelming. And that was one of the reasons I started my podcast as a remedy. But then I also found, particularly when I do the episodes of my podcast where I do like a solo deep dive, so I do all the research myself, you can just end up in this very depressing rabbit hole where you can read the solutions on paper, but it doesn't. the, the solutions seem very non-tangible, whereas the, the problems seem very tangible, as in, you know, you see footage of a fire in Australia kind of thing. So I really relate to that depressing nature of the, of the, of the challenge. Absolutely. And I think the other thing with that is that it's very easy to think that people know way better than you and the solutions have been found. And if they haven't been found, then they're not, they don't exist. 
Yes. But that's not true at all. I mean, there's huge swathes of people who haven't been mobilized around climate change. Yes. You know, with a huge range of skills. Yes. So if we can, you know, if we can make people realize actually there's huge potential for everyone to create change, then you're going to start to see this change. Yes. And I think for a long time, people have been kind of hanging their hopes a bit too much in technological innovation. They're like, oh, we'll solve it with renewables. Exactly. And I'm like, okay, that's true. Renewables will be a huge part of the of the of the solution, but um, it won't do the whole job. And I think that knowledge is now spreading a little bit more um, in people. And that actually can also be very depressing where it's like, we can't rely on innovation on this particular case. Sorry, technological innovation. Or switch around and say, actually, that could be hugely optimistic because you look at all the people, these huge, huge proportions of people who don't take climate action individually because they don't believe that it has any impact. Yes. And actually, if they start to realize that it has impact and choose to take action, and you know, research suggests that all of those people do want to take action because consistently research says that over 70%, over 80% of people see climate change as the biggest threat to humanity of this generation. And they also support climate action. I mean, there was one specific piece of research on football fans, for example, and 86% of fans wanted their club to take more climate action. Yeah. This is invisible. So if you can show them the impact they can have and the ways in which they can take action, then that's a huge potential for change. Yes, I agree. And then, you know, that also breaks down, you know, there's not just technological innovation, there's social innovation, there's ways of um, activating and mobilizing people. And of course, an example of that would be Pledge Ball. So um, if I can ask, how does Pledge Ball work? So it works by engaging existing communities. So I'm going to focus on the football angle of it to start with, at least. Okay. Um, so it asks football fans to make or allows them to make sustainable lifestyle pledges in support of their clubs. So quite simply, it plays off the existing match day fixtures. So you support a club, whether you're going to the game or not, you can go on the website, you can see your club's fixtures on there, and you can pledge in support of your team. The team of fans that pledges to save the most emissions wins the fixture, and the cumulative amount they pledge to save determines where they fall in the pledge ball league. Okay. Okay, so these pledges range from using a reusable cup to going vegan two days a week to installing solar panels. And there are roughly about 65 on there currently. So there's something for everyone. Mm -hmm. And the thing that we found with that, those pledges um, when we've researched the impact is that having that number of pledges serves a couple of purposes. First of all, it makes people realize that they're already doing certain things that are having an impact. And it makes the, the impact of this visible. So it's empowering in that sense. Secondly, it gives them this kind of instant raised consciousness because there's this huge number of pledges on there. There are many things on there that people say they didn't realize had an impact. And so they suddenly become more aware and they start to carry this carbon currency in their head when they go about their daily lives. So when they make choices, rather than just considering, say, how much something costs in terms of money, actually they consider the impact that that has on the environment. And that's exactly what we want to do. Yes. That's, you know, that's how the pledges work. Um, the other thing that we found with Pledgeball is the fact that it triggers conversation. So when we've launched, when we launched Bristol City, for example, uh, there was a discussion happening on a fan forum there around the launch. And, you know, besides some incredible puns <laughs> off the back of the launch, there were also conversations then about how to turn your washing machine down to 30 degrees. Yep. And, you know, uh, one fan had challenged the fact that, you know, if India and China aren't curbing their emissions, what's the point? And another fan had come in arguing the point of individual behavior change. Yep. 
So it sparks those conversations and then also makes visible the fact that these fans pledging, they're part of a community of people who care and are taking action. So yep. not only fellow fans pledging in support of the club, but also fans across the country because you can see them within the Pledge Board League. Yes. I like uh, some of the terminology as well that's building around this. Like I saw on your website that the fans who have pledged are called pledge ballers. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's great. <laughs> yeah. And, you, you know, we've got a dream that we'll have a, a campaign that will be, you know, shared by footballers, shared by fans alike, sending in photos themselves, carrying out these pledges. And you are hashtag pledge balled, obviously, if you've done this. Yes. Love that. Um, so now I like this term you used, uh, raised consciousness. I think that's quite an interesting one because, yeah, that very much implies that what would have maybe started for you on match day because of, of pledge ball, then would exactly f- sort of spill over into other decisions you make for the rest of your life. Have you seen any evidence of that spilling over into their social communities? You know, if I'm a fan and I start pledging, maybe I'll go talk to my family, talk to my friends. What have you, what have you seen from that? So besides that example of the fan forum thread, I guess that's a, that's the most concrete example we have. Yeah. Is also really just the just anecdotal evidence, to be honest, from talking to people, because that is exactly one of the key things you've touched upon there. That's something that's really crucial, is sparking these conversations in in places that people frequent, but the conversations haven't existed so far. Yeah. And there's an incredible group of researchers called Climate Outreach that we worked with. And one of the things that they found was that people really, they would consider a conversation about climate change and start one if they could relate it to personal experience. So if, for example, oh, I've done this, that was the way to trigger a conversation rather than it being, for example, about something in the news that was less likely to trigger a conversation. Yes. So what would be great about Pledge Ball is that, you know, if a fan goes to a game, they go, oh, I pledged today. Look, my uh, the score's up on the big screen. I pledge. Did you pledge? Mm. Did you pledge? And then it just initiates a conversation that's not actually that easier to start normally. Yes. And obviously, this is not, we're not talking like, there's a lot of angles around this about donation. And that puts a lot of pressure, you know, because football is historically a working class sport. So we can't be expecting fans to, often fans who have already paid for the ticket, they've paid for the jersey, they're already committed to their, like, from a financial perspective to their team can't start asking them to start paying spending more um for climate action but to pledge in in terms of action i think is quite effective exactly and i mean it's more than that as well because you know not only will we go nowhere near the money side of things and ask ask individual fans to pledge but there's the other aspect of this where we're not asking fans to do anything we're just providing a facility that they can choose to get involved in, involved in if they want alongside mm. their fellow fans they can choose whatever they want to do in that. There's no dictation. We're not checking up on anybody. Yes. Literally just there as a facility so that if they want to take action, they can. And this is crucial. The only way you're going to get transformative change is if it comes through this individual agency. So if yes. you choose what suits them and choose when they do it. Yes. This is, you know, it's a really interesting point you touched upon there with the money side of things, but also about this having choice the whole way through. Yes. And I, I think that that individual action then quickly starts to multiply into this area around, I suppose the term I'd use is group dynamics. And I'm, I, I love gr- group dynamics. I love reading about it. It's such an interesting thing. There's, you know, it's with this intersection of like psychology and, and um, social anthropology and all this kind of stuff. And in terms of um, understanding behavior, behavioral science, and 
uh, I've, I've seen it in one of the most minor things of, you know, if you've got a group of, of 10 people and they're deciding which, maybe which pub to go to, if seven of them want one pub and the other three want that one, they'll go with the seven. That's just standard group dynamics. So it's the same thing with a climate pledge, right? Maybe one or two people don't want to take certain actions because their friends are doing otherwise. A classic one maybe would be going vegan for a couple of days. It's like, oh, I can't go vegan because everyone wants to go to this restaurant tonight. It's like, oh, hang on. If seven of us want to go to this other restaurant tonight, what, that slightly changes the conversation. And then, yeah, it can multiply. You're exactly right. I mean, there are two things you've touched on there. First of all, the fact that everybody has way more impact than they realize just by having conversations within their own spheres of, influ of influence. Yes. And secondarily, that these individual changes feed into systemic change. You yes. Know, they, they filter out through those conversations, but then that also influences how people vote. Yes. How people vote with their feet in terms of buying. And all of this feeds into systemic change. And, you know, as you said, it doesn't take a large proportion of people to start that shift. I mean, I yes. think Mumbio said it was 3.5% of a group doing something that then started to trigger a social movement. And so we're not talking about big numbers. We're talking about a few people getting on board and starting this movement. Yes. And I think it's funny. I think often these things do need a catalyst. And it, I think uh, the pandemic showed us a, a catalyst around certain behaviors um, that we didn't expect. I think a big one was something like flying, where before it was like, okay, all your friends are going on a holiday to um, the south of Spain this summer. And so if you don't take that flight, you just, you know, you're just going to socially ostracize yourself. And like, I do think we've kind of, we have flipped a bit back since post-COVID, you know, people are still flying to Spain, but there's this just change of conversation of actually, you know, last summer, for example, people maybe took the train down to Cornwall instead with their friends and had just as good of a time. And there was also not this thing of like, oh, the other group have gone somewhere. So I'm feeling bad. You know, the, the FOMO element of it was removed. So it just required that catalyst of this is the only option on the table for this year. Why don't you give it a go? And now people have seen the value in it. And I think Pledge Ball can now be that catalyst in the same way. It just is that first step, that introduction to being like, oh, look, you can do it this way. And um, yeah, hopefully that that's then spills over. You're exactly right. It's about imagining a new normal. Yes. I mean, we humans are very good at adapting and uh, just forgetting the fact there could be any change. They adapt and assume that what is happening is normal. And in yes. some ways that's really helpful. In others, it's appalling because it means obviously that, you know, you have uh, things that aren't challenged that just become part of everyday life that you don't even realize you don't question because it just mm. seems normal. I mean, a really obvious example is smoking, you know, smoking in clubs and pubs that used to be so normal. And now when you think about it and you think about how you used to come back from going out and <laughs> you used to absolutely stink, even if you didn't smoke, you know, the thought of somebody smoking next to you or a whole club being full of smoke is, is just abhorrent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it yeah. used to be so normal. Yes. And it's about reminding people of, of, of the fact that things can change and that serves in a really good way. Yes. You know, change things. And actually that, that change can be really enjoyable. Whereas normally people's instantaneous response to change is a knee jerk. I don't like it. And it's funny. And I, I don't want to use the term peer pressure in a positive sense, but it is a similar concept of a lot of people started smoking, particularly in their sort of late teens or whatever, because of peer pressure, you know, they went to a party and everyone else was outside having a smoke. And so you, you just don't want to be left out and you want to try it and you want to be involved. You want, it's a like classic, you know, sort of, um, I don't want to say tribal mentality, but you want to be a part of whatever's going on. You can then almost have the reverse response. And I've seen it with a few friends, particularly at why a lot of my friends have recently quit smoking. Um, where then suddenly you're sort of sitting in the pub and one person stands up and says, oh, like I'm going for a smoke. And what, five years ago, 
nine out of 10 of us would have stood up and gone outside. Now, you know, nine out of 10 say no thanks. Then it's the opposite. They're like, Ooh, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't be smoking as much as I, I am. Um, and again, of course, I don't want to demonize anyone who still chooses to smoke. That's not the point. But I think that's also the case, same case with pledge ball. You don't want to demonize the people who are not doing everything they can, but it's about starting the process, about taking these steps. Exactly. And making people aware. Mm. I mean, the other thing that you've kind of touched upon there is the fact that the people who are most influential are actually our, our friends and our peers. Yes. You know, and our families. So people coming in and telling you what to do, or even just educating you and making you more aware, you're not going to listen in the same way. But the yes. wonderful thing about the sports community is that if you can have advocates really talking about change within these communities, that's when you're going to get real change. Yes. So one of the things that we're particularly excited about this year is the fact that we announced our partnership with Football Supporters Association in January uh, yes. this year. And what this will allow us to do is to work with all the supporters groups who belong to the Supporters Association and essentially work with them to support them to advocate for Pledge Ball, both amongst their membership and amongst their fellow fans and at the club. And it's those kind of messengers who know the local community who know exactly how they work know the things that matter to them that will be respected and listened to and can really drive this change and you know there's always been an element around football supporters and it becomes a little bit of a dare i say a religion for some people and that can be leveraged in both directions it's often unfortunately is leveraged in a negative in a direction you think of you know gang violence you think of all this kind of stuff especially in the late 90s you know where yeah to be considered part of your football supporters group, you'd almost have to start doing things you wouldn't have normally done, but in the in the negative sense. Using something like Pledge Ball, you could almost um, do the opposite and sort of ingrain this more sustainable behavior into the culture of the club so that even new fans joining who maybe wouldn't have uh, otherwise considered certain behaviors would be like, oh my God, look, I'm, I'm joining this new community and the, the drive to join that community is obviously still football. But then, yeah, what are these supporters groups getting up to um, and what kind of social interactions are they having? Exactly. I mean, being a football fan is essentially, you know, you emotionally identify with a club. Yes. And, you know, again, research shows very much that a lot of people, the vast majority of people really, it really matters to them what their club is doing actually outside of football as well. They do take pride in the fact that, for example, a lot of clubs, but even those, you know, non-league clubs who actually were really affected with the lack of income in the pandemic, they were, sort, you know, sorting out food banks and yes. delivering food to those in need. and they do a huge amount within the local community and there's yeah. a real sense of pride with that for fans. So, you know, imagine your club getting on board and actually driving this and being like top of the league, really working uh, to make sure that fellow fans also pledge. So you are top of that pledgeable league. And then those conversations, you think all those people who pledge are all going to be having conversations around this. And so even though it may not be immediately visible, actually that change has already begun. And that sense of pride in your club, I mean, I'd certainly want <laughs> I'd be wanting to chant about my club being the greenest club. Yeah, yeah. And I have it even now. So um, I'm a Liverpool fan. And, you know, I don't think Liverpool's owners are in any way sque squeaky clean. But it is a point of pride for me that they're not, shall we say, exclusively funded by oil money. That's just, it's something that I'm feeling very proud about. And I know, I know plenty of um, friends who support Man City, loads of friends who support Newcastle. And you, you can see the opposite happening where you know, obviously what's just happened with Newcastle, owned now by the um, Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is, you know, a lot of those assets, um, a lot of those profits do come from oil. You know, for, for a sort of average person in Newcastle, they're kind of torn. They're like, you know, this is my team. This is the team I love, and a team I want to be proud of. 
and their previous owner wasn't particularly nice to them anyway. But the fact that the the only um, sort of saving grace they've been offered is this, it's a point of conflict for them. So you'd almost want this to be the opposite of, okay, my club is empowering people to become more sustainable. That is a point of pride. That's something you could, you know, um, tell your friends about at the pub <laughs> and feel good about it. Completely. Um, yeah. And just to touch on one of the points you mentioned earlier, I also like this, how you mentioned you could mobilize broader action. And I think we actually talked about this a bit the other day with regards to like empowering voters. What may have started with a conversation you had at your football game two, three, four years down the line may then affect where you vote. And obviously, as soon as voters start changing, that means the wheels of policy uh, start changing. And policy is obviously one of the major tools we, we need to create this quite rapid change. Absolutely. I mean, we need we need change on all fronts, really. We need that structural change, but we also need that individual change so that we're supporting it and driving it and also cutting those emissions ourselves. I mean, two thirds of emissions are directly linked to household emissions. Mm. So there's a huge amount of impact. I think there was something I saw in The Guardian the other day about um, a group called Jump, and they pointed out that if you just made six behavior changes, if we all did it, it would actually, that would be a quarter of our targets in order to meet that 1.5 degree uh, target. Yes. So people underestimate the impact that individual behavior change can have. I mean, we actually try to translate that a little bit into things that are more tangible. So when we provide, when we provide stats to clubs, for example, we show things like uh, with, you know, Ashton Gate Stadium, the Bristol City Ground, just one stadium's worth of fans, simply reducing shower time to five minutes. Saves the same amount of emissions as taking over 2,000 cars off the road. Wow. So even just very small changes as this collective are hugely impactful. Yeah. And that, that's the kind of change that has so little barrier, right? Like we can all just um, have shorter showers. Whereas something like taking 2,000 cars off the road, there's some barriers to that. Some people need to exactly. drive to get to work. You know, electric cars aren't always that affordable. How, how they power electric cars isn't yet um, entirely green. So... Yeah, that it, they build electric cars is definitely not green. <laughs> no, exactly. Car. Building electric cars, building batteries. So yeah, yeah we all we think, oh, two thousand cars off the road would be amazing, and it would, but it's not. You can't do that overnight. Whereas you can, you know, take shorter showers starting today. Exactly right. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. So, what would you say have been the biggest challenges so far in in the pledge ball journey? Um, I mean, <laughs> to be perfectly blunt. Probably the fact that um, I'm trying to do this on no money mm-hmm, <laughs> at mm-hmm. the moment. We currently consist of a team of volunteers. We're a registered charity. And the thing that has been incredible about it is that, number one, you have people who are incredibly passionate about this, but also the uptake for this. I mean, we are at the big, the tip of an iceberg, I would say, in terms of sustainability in sport. I think people are starting to realize the huge potential that sport has for driving change. You know, behavior change has constantly been something that's talked about in papers. You know, the UN are very aware that this is is what is required, but it's such a difficult thing to bring about. I mean, a lot of behavior change campaigns, for example, focus specifically on a few behaviors. And what is often seen is that people might do those behaviors for a little bit, but actually they offset in other areas of their lives thinking, oh, well, I'm I'm being good here. I'm I'm eating a vegan meal, so I'm going to go and take the car here rather than walking. Or mm. what we want instead obviously as i said before is this holistic shift in mindset this awareness of impact so that you carry that with you and you make those decisions throughout yes. i mean funding has been one key thing that's an issue <laughs> and the other yeah. thing initially was obviously getting buy-in from stakeholders so obviously yeah. encouraging clubs to get on board so we could use their platforms 
But actually, I say that's a barrier and it's changed very, very rapidly from us door knocking and making the case to people coming to us. Um, mm. I think probably those are the two main things, to be perfectly honest, because when you yes. speak to people, when we've we've I've attended uh, a number of, of the FSA network meetings now, for example, and with yep. the supporters trust members there, and the support is overwhelming. I mean, people are, yep. are really incredibly keen to advocate for this. So that, I would say, has yes. been the opposite to a barrier. <laughs> That's been a real accelerator, especially with the number of people who've come on as volunteers. Yeah, yeah. I, I think as well, when you talk about um, that knocking on doors phase, I think sometimes that's quite a good phase for an, in, like an institution like yours that needs to be at its best. So, you know, in, in those um, years or months, you would have always made sure that the product that you're bringing to these um, football teams is is good. And so then exactly at some point, enough of them get on board and through them, the other teams see the value in it, that it'll probably just entirely tip over and they'll be coming to you. But at that point, you, you want to be offering your best. You are exactly right. Yeah. I mean, in fact, one of the things that we did very early on when we launched with our pilot club, uh, a club called Whitehawk in September 2020, mm. it was pretty much just me then. And the thing I really wanted to make sure that we did was check that what we were doing actually worked. You know, this was something yeah. that I came up with alongside my football team. And we just came up with it. It wasn't kind of through reading or anything like that. So I approached a research fellow called Mark Deutsch, who is an expert in football fandom. He's based at the University of Brighton um, and is actually a Whitehawk fan. And I asked him to help me to design a piece of research to assess the impact of pledge ball at this club. But luckily at the mm. time, intern to him was a woman called Jenny Arman who was at the University of Gothenburg at the time, a master's student there. And she ended up carrying out her master's thesis on the potential for mobilizing football fans around climate change and on fans' experience with pledge ball. And so we had a really thorough piece of research that really demonstrated the huge potential impact for pledge ball and the impact of you know, it as it was then with the Whitehawk fans experiencing it, yeah. you know, which I obviously touched upon the results of that earlier. So yes, it was yeah. about making sure it worked and then honing strategy using that as well. Yes, exactly. And it's good to have that kind of solid basis because a lot of the stuff we've already talked about today, it, it does sound quite good in, in in just talking about it, but you need that, uh, even for, you, for your own confidence in what you're doing, you need that bit of evidence to say, listen, this what this does work. Um, and I actually relate that to a little bit what we were talking about earlier and, and, and um, having more of a holistic change. I think often football fans have felt quite helpless in a lot of what I would call the corporatization of football, you know, that they, 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 they don't have a say in who owns their team. They don't have a say in so many things they would like to. And I think it's a lot of it was because they just didn't have any proof that they could make a change. And I think the, the, the rebuffing of the Super League last year, where those six teams were going to break away and how that was squashed was such a good proof of concept of actually, no, if we do all come together and draw a line under something and say, no, this is not okay. This is not for us these teams although you own them financially and in terms of you know legally a football fan is a football team is nothing without its fans so yeah this also belongs to us in this emotional way and we're drawing a line under it and i think that's shown the proof that um yeah we can do more both as individuals but also we have more power as individuals and as 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 groups absolutely i we there are some really good examples within uh sustainability in football actually of fans really having an impact. There's a really great group um, of Burnley fans called Sustainable Clarets who are really making quite a lot of headway. And what started as a very small group, just deciding that they were going to 
really try to encourage the club to take action, support them with it, but also rally fans around them, uh, yeah. in, you know, to pledge. They've had a huge impact. In Germany, I mean, now the Bundesliga has introduced a sustainability aspect that's a requirement within the licensing. Yes. And part of that came from an incredible group there who really petitioned for this and worked around this. So there are, there's some really good examples of fans driving change. They, they have way more power than they realize. And that brings me sort of to the next question. What's, what is the next step? Are you looking to maybe bring on um, bigger institutions is it, or are you just focusing on teams, uh, clubs? What's, what's, the, what, what's the outlook? Good question. So our aim really is to introduce it into leagues. I mean, it's something that just is integral to match day and plays into it. And it's very easy and very accessible. And, you know, it's not in your face. So people, as I said before, can get involved or don't have to. So, we started with a few clubs to hone strategy. We capped that actually last year. Um, and now we're actually looking at integrating it more widely. Um, mm. Obviously, the partnership with the FSA will actually introduce it to a degree at a league level because there are supporters groups from across all leagues um, and many supporters groups. So you'll start to see that competition anyway. But yeah, that's, that's the aim is rather than going club by club, it becomes a league uh, implementation. Yes. And I do think it's good to start one at grassroots level, but and also, shall we say, middle level as well, because I often find when people think, oh, why don't we go straight to UEFA? Why don't we go straight to FIFA? In my experience with these institutions, th those institutions are so big, they never will do anything without pressure. They will not, especially if it, unfortunately, the, the truth is, especially if it starts hindering profit margins, which a lot of sustainable activity sometimes does. They won't take the first step. And I've noticed this with, I'm talking to friends who are, shall we say, not as um, football fanatical as I am, where I've been looking at like sustainability issues in UEFA for ages. And then UEFA will come up with this new um, thing. Being like, oh, we've, we've partnered with this to be more sustainable than that. And it's like, oh, that's cool that UEFA are, are changing it. No, they're not. But they are getting enough pressure to change it. And I, I think the idea of getting our entire league together yeah, you know, selection of um, clubs, that's the kind of pressure UEFA would actually listen to. If the entirety of the Premier League said, listen, we're drawing a line here. This is this is minimum standard that we need from regulations, from, um, as you say, like into the licensing, then UEFA would, they would do it. I know they would. Um, but you have to build the pressure from the bottom up, I think. You're absolutely right. And it's not, it's not just the pressure that's important. It's also the fact that, as I said before, really where you're going to get this change is if it is owned by those within the community. So mm. you need that multi-pronged approach. You need the fans driving it. You need the non-league clubs who have a huge potential for change because they're such an incredible part of this community. You know, people yes. go to non-leagues every single day, every single week. You know, it's not like you occasionally get tickets to see a professional club play. These, you have people going every single week, the same people, you know, you feel really close to that club. Yes. So it needs to be driven from that respect, but you also need those supporting structures. So you need the organizations the organizational bodies coming on board to make it easier for fans, number one, for example, to take the sustainable travel option to games or provide, provide link-ups and support to local infrastructure that really makes these things easy. But you need yeah. fans driving it as well because that's where you're going to really see this change. Yes, and I think that's the kind of thing we all... We all sort of know, in, like, without really thinking about it, that, that the community is so important. But when you really think about it, that is even more true than we think it is. I saw a really good, I mean, changing sport a bit here. I saw a really good little short documentary on Sky the other day about um, one of the cricket grounds they had in, in the West Indies that was 
bought up by this American billionaire and, and he, he made signed some deal with the English cricket board and they had this testimonial match with like England and West Indies and all of, all of this sort of very flashy stuff. Then it turned out that the, the, the billionaire had embezzled a lot of money. There was a lot of fraud. He's gone to jail. So all the money dried up. So the stadium that he'd bought then just fell off a cliff. It, it went into disrepair and all these horrible things and has since been reintegrated into West Indian cricket the local community have bought it back and you know they can find the value again in, in something that was always actually theirs and only with that kind of this is mine and i live here kind of mentality it's never going to be treated as well otherwise you know this guy lived in texas he didn't care about that stadium and he probably only been there twice versus the person who's walked by it every day they used to play there as a kid that that stuff means something and that's that's the kind of stuff that'll keep you behaving to the best of your local community's interests for the long term. Yes, you have hit the nail on the head in terms of climate communication as well. I mean, people people can relate to what's local, but if something's abstract like climate change or it's happening somewhere else where you can't imagine it, you don't engage with it in the same way. Um, yes. You know, it's the same with, I mean, offsetting is obviously very ambiguous for a number of reasons. There's a lot, of, yeah, I won't go into that. But the other issue with offsetting is that trees tend to be planted somewhere else. And some people yep. don't even see that. What you want yep. is to improve your locality. You do things for your for your local community that you can see. So, so the li- the listeners won't be able to see this, but we now have a, a one year old on our. On our <laughs> and one year old has had her hair done by a sibling this morning. <laughs> Outstanding. Well, you know, the, the, she is a, a future generation. She's a stakeholder, so <laughs> we need to get her on board. <laughs> she, she she's a future pledge baller. <laughs> she is. <laughs> I mean, my son now refers to uh, a particular green as pledgeable green, so they are. <laughs> oh, excellent, excellent, exactly right. Yeah, so I suppose the the point we were making about community is 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 particular. I find it quite true in a, a lot of. Unfortunately, it goes against a lot of the profit driven um, uh, mindsets of football teams. They don't want like thousand locally based super hard fans. They actually want a million doesn't matter where they live, we'll buy a t-shirt kind of fans. So one, that's not particularly sustainable behavior. It involves a lot more flying, a lot more purchasing. But yeah, then you lose that, you lose that community, that community sense, which is a shame. And I like to think something like pledge ball can be a part of kind of bringing football back to where football's from, which is, you know, local communities and belonging to people rather than corporations. Yeah, absolutely. I like to think that as well. I mean, I guess so. It's a difficult one. On the subject of engaging people who are geographically dispersed the other nice thing about it is it is a way of engaging with your club you know it's a way of coming together with those fellow fans to engage with your club and I mean like I said you've got the fan forums already existing but if you could then start to use those communities to for example share ideas on how to be more sustainable you know have have kind of spin-offs from those that is also something that will be really valuable because those people are already you know linked with something they genuinely care about Mm. Those communities are going to really support sustained change. And you mentioned, yeah, particularly a lot of the offsetting programs are not local. It's you're planting trees in a place you've never been and will never see. That doesn't give you the same even feeling of of like you've contributed as as something more in front of you, more local would do. Um, and I also just think offsetting is, again, it's too convenient. Like clubs are like, oh, you know, pay us to buy lots of jerseys and come to lots of expensive games. And if you're worried about sustainability, pay us more. Yeah, and we'll it's completely greenwashing. And it, you know, it, it doesn't work. No. <laughs> you know, there are, there are very few examples where it works. You plant a tree, that tree could, you know, 
a 30 year old tree on average absorbs 25 kilos of, of carbon emissions, which is not, mm. it's, it's not very much. Um, yeah. but also even in getting to that point, there are so many things that can happen to that tree. <laughs> yes. Yes. Diseased, it can be burnt down. It's not carbon, uh, carbon offsetting has to be done. I think as a transition solution, whilst we, we simply can't avoid certain emissions, they're offsetting yes. such as planting seagrass, et cetera, stuff that is genuinely working and isn't negatively contributing towards, for example, the local biodiversity, yeah. fair enough. But it really needs to be pushed way down the list with the actual choices that we make coming first above that. Yes. And I touched upon this in a previous episode. I think that one was about specifically talking about F1 and this difference between like um, strong sustainability and weak sustainability, which is a concept that's quite well reviewed in, in academia, but it, it, it holds true in a practical application where, as you've talked about, like, you know, the life, life cycle of a tree, even in terms of how much a rainforest or a big forest is a carbon sink, that doesn't happen overnight. That requires literally generations for that very, very dense level of flora and fauna to sort of keep that carbon in versus an individual tree. The classic one is when you see a tree at a golf course. I'm like, but that's not a forest. That's just a standalone tree that's been planted there to look nice. It does, I mean, okay, there's absorbing a little bit of carbon, but it's not, it's not what you think about when you think of the um, a carbon sink like a rainforest. And on top of that, not everywhere can or should be rainforest. We have this problem in my- Actually, right in my home country of South Africa, where, you know, a lot of that is grassland. It's meant to be savannah. That's how it's been. That's how the ecosystem is based. And now we keep putting forests. We're trying to put forests there. And yeah, not all the animals like forests. <laughs> no, I mean, there is, there's a lot that isn't yet understood about offsetting, about, I mean, the books recently, for example, about um, how trees communicate, you know, using these mm. high feed that are under the ground and actually communicate with each other. And so if you, going back to your example of the golf course, you know, if you've got a woodland, the trees actually <laughs> communicate with each other through this network of hyphae, these kind of fungi under the ground. And mm. so, in fact, support uh, those weaker trees, even nutritionally in some, to some degree. Yes. But we don't understand enough of this to be able to interfere in any way. So when we plant, when we plant a tree and we choose what tree goes there, there isn't a thorough understanding of the impact that that has on the local ecosystem. Yes. You know, there was another report recently that showed actually if we just left rainforests to regenerate, they could regenerate far better than we could by planting things within 25 years. It's about, you know, yes. also that that letting things grow back and letting them be. Yes. And I actually have a story on all of that, which links pretty much everything we've just talked about. So there is an author called John Green, which some of you may have heard of. He wrote The Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns, which were turned into movies in the last couple of years. Um, but he's also a big football fan and he was a big part of AFC Wimbledon's sort of regeneration because there was a team in Wimbledon that then got moved to Milton yeah. Keynes, which the Wimbledon fans were really sad about. So they started their own team that's entirely owned by fans. And he was a big, as a fan, he, he was a big supporter of that, yeah, even though he's from the States. And that's like a really amazing story in itself. So um, he's also a Liverpool fan on the side, which is great. <laughs> so, totally biased. You can tell I'm biased here. But um, he also does this podcast. So he's a podcast. Oh my God, I, this, this, this guy's my role model. Um, but he does this podcast called The Anthropocene Reviewed. And one of the episodes he looks at is like your garden lawn and how so many people would think like an average garden lawn is a good thing as in as part of nature. And to be fair, if that's not, rather than it being concrete, it is, would be debated for it to be lawn. But if you have to cut down trees and forest to make lawn, that is Absolutely. not a good thing for 
the environment or for carbon or for anything. A patch of lawn that's quite water intensive to make it look nice is not no. absorbing carbon. But you're right. It is really interesting to see um, the, I guess, misconceptions around this. Mm. Because there are things like that. You know, you see some green and you think, therefore, it is good. <laughs> And I think, you know, maybe a lot of fans after this part of the discussion will be like, oh, so if we can't offset, what can we do? Pledge ball. That's what you can do. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I suppose as a, uh, so I'm going to ask you a final question and then I have a few quick fire questions just to help the uh, audience get to know you a bit, which are unrelated to what we've been talking about. So, um, but as a, as a last question of about pledge ball, which teams are currently on board? I know you said you capped it, but which teams have you have you brought on board? So we have our first team was Whitehawk FC, the amazing Whitehawk yes. FC. So if you don't know Whitehawk, look them up because they are awesome. They have anti-racist, anti-homophobic chants that their uh, that their fans sing. They change ends at halftime. You take a beer to the game, and they've also got an incredible set of steps. I won't elaborate on that, but have a look because they are they're an amazing team. Um, so Whitehawk, we have Charlton Athletic. Uh, Bristol City, Birmingham City, Birmingham County FA, which is linked to a slightly different facility to Pledge Ball. So there are there are actually 100 grassroots clubs signed up to Pledge Ball through Birmingham County FA. Wow. Um, Huddersfield Town Supporters Association have driven uh, Huddersfield Town to be quite high up in the league. Um, who have I missed? Peckham Town. And I think, oh, I'm going to get in trouble here for not remembering off the top of my head. <laughs> But I think I've listed them all. And then from the women's game, there's Bristol City women, Charlton women, and uh, hopefully Birmingham City women soon as well. Amazing. And there's already some really nice clubs in there. Um, I have a fun spot for Birmingham in general because I, I used to live there for work. So I'm glad Birmingham are involved. And also I had the, because of, of a friend, I had the privilege of going to Huddersfield Town's playoff final game a couple of years ago when they got promoted great group of fans and i'm not surprised at all that they're one of the first ones to um be motivated to take these kind of steps i mean they are amazing their supporters association have driven a sustainable stadium campaign up at huddersfield and yes subsequently to that partnered with pledge ball they are an incredible group of fans i mean the other thing that i will mention i've kind of left this club off because there's a bigger thing attached to it but shoreham fc who are another non-league club based in southeast of england um also came on board as partners but that is leading to an even bigger thing that uh, will be announced later in the year through the incredible Shoreham who have done a oh. huge amount of work especially as a non-league club I mean they won the British Association Sustainability and Sport Award earlier this okay. year for the work they've done so definitely worth looking at amazing nice I like to end a little bit of cliffhanger there so yeah keep <laughs> yeah. watching this space <laughs> uh, yeah. when you see pledge ball on the front page of the Guardian you'll know why um <laughs> So I think that that sort of covers us in terms of uh, of your work. So I'm just going to hit you with a few quick fire questions just so the audience gets to know you a bit more as a person. Could you recommend to us a book that you have read in the last, let's say, 12 months that was particularly impactful on you? Oh, wow. I can barely remember yesterday. <laughs> no, I can't remember this morning. <laughs> Um, oh, I think you should have prepped me for this one. That's other thing. No, nah, the whole point is to not prep you. I know. I can't even remember what I'm reading at the moment. <laughs> I tell you what I would recommend is Wilding by Isabella Tree. That is yes. an amazing book. That was a really great book. And that talks a lot about the hyphae and also the soil aggregates that act as a carbon sink. Um, and the fact that if you don't use, you know, organic, if you don't farm organically, then you destroy these soil aggregates. Mm. Yeah. And actually, we, from a personal perspective, we've experienced that a lot where my family are sort of farmers by trade. And uh, 
we've moved into organic farming in the last sort of 10, 15 years. And it's actually, you almost have to re-educate, re-educate yourself on how to farm. It's that different of a thing because there are a lot of things that start going against you, for example, weeds, but there's a lot of things that start going in favor of you as in start understanding what is a weed and what isn't and nature's more natural processes of, yeah, protecting a crop. Yeah, and that's what the book starts with uh, Isabella Tree and her partner actually as farmers and the yield going down because of the quality of the soil and therefore leaving them no choice but to switch to rewilding and organic farming. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, it's, a, it's bizarrely a page turner, which you wouldn't necessarily expect when <laughs> if somebody describes what it's about to you. Yes. Um, and so I think, because this is one of the questions I ask a lot of the guests, so I'm going to try and put together a reading list of recommendations. Problem is, it's, everyone comes up with a good book. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not going to get through my own list. Um, yeah. Uh, so then I think last question, um, just because you still have a one-year-old on your lap. Um, if you're doing something on a Sunday afternoon that is not sports or work related, what are you doing in terms of just relaxing, et cetera? <laughs> it's a long time since I didn't just entertain children on a Sunday afternoon. Mm, valid point. <laughs> uh, walking. I really love walking, particularly an autumnal walk where you end up in a cozy pub. That would be one of my favorite things. Yes. And I think again, during the pandemic, that was something I think I sort of re-fell in love with a bit. And I'm happy to say that habit had stuck. Um, you know, I wasn't in a city during the pandemic and I've, I'm now come back to London. And it's funny that even though countryside walks are, I would say, slightly superior to city walks, this is another reason why parks and green spaces are essential in cities. Absolutely. I, everybody, I think, realized the value of walking, didn't they? Indeed. You also found people actually talk to you when you walk as well. <laughs> Right, right. I mean, it's shocking how that happens. Human <laughs> beings actually socializing when, when you can't watch uh, Netflix together. Exactly. Or go on your phone. <laughs> so I think on that happy note, we'll end there. Katie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It has been a pleasure. Thank you very, very much for having me. That was our conversation with Katie Cross. Full disclosure, I'm actually going to be working directly for Pledgeball over the coming months as I just think their and my own drive to leverage football for progressive change is very much aligned. So if you want to know more, of course, you can contact Katie, but you can also hit me up and we can keep things moving. As always, thank you so much for tuning into today's episode and I will see you in the next one.